Okay, let's uh, let's open our Bibles. Open our Bibles to the book of Malachi. Malachi. If you don't know where Malachi is, it if you find the book of Matthew, go back one book, and there it is. Page eight forty two. Does that actually work for anybody's Bible? Right. Okay. Okay. All right, so we're in Malachi, Malachi chapter 3. Go to Matthew, turn left, and you'll find it. Interesting thing about the book of Malachi, it is the last book in our Bible, but it is not the last book in the Hebrew Bible. The book of Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. The book of Malachi is located last in our Bible, for one very definite reason. It is, I believe, because it is the book that talks about the return of Christ. And it is the book that was written probably about 400 uh, B.C. And it, uh, it is this burden that Malachi had. And as you begin to go through it, I'm going to just show you a little bit here uh, what's going on. Look in chapter 3. And verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Does that sound familiar? Who's it sound like? John the Baptist, exactly. Go to chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day is coming, which shall burn them up, says the Lord. And that will leave them neither root nor branch, but you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall arise with healing in his wings. That sound familiar? What's that sound like? Yeah, it sounds like a return, doesn't it? Now let me show you something as you're kind of everybody's kind of getting settled in here, and then we're going to jump into the lesson. Do you remember the woman who had the issue of blood, and she had tried everything she could could to find healing? Do you remember that? She'd gone everywhere, and then finally there was a crowd. Jesus was making his way through the crowd. And he turned to his disciples and he said, who touched me? Do you remember that? And you, you almost see the humor in the question, right? Who touched me? Well, you're surrounded. The disciples say, you're surrounded by people. I mean, no, no, no. I felt, now listen to what he said. I felt the power go out. Now, I want to teach you a couple of things here. When you lay hold of the promises of God, the power is transferred. There's a transfer of power that happens. God is empowering you. He's transferring power and authority to you so you can act on his behalf on planet earth. But now let me show you the second thing. What it says that someone touched me, what what was happening there, she was laying hold of the hem of his garment, and it was customary in that day, because she makes reference to the prophetic side of this, it was customary in that day for the Jews to wear a prayer shawl, and that prayer shawl they would wrap over them. Jesus would have done this as a rabbi. And when you pull that over, the back two corners on that prayer shawl are called the wings. They're called the wings. And I believe when she grabbed the hem of that garment, she was grabbing the wing. She was thus fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4. When the Messiah comes, he will come with healing in his 
wings. In his wings. That prayer shawl had, had uh, strings. If you ever seen them, they've got strings on them. And they've got uh, all the strings and all the knots there. They all add up to 613, which the rabbi said they counted up the, the commandments. And there were 613 commandments. So that prayer shawl represented all the commands of God. So when you put it over your head, what you were essentially saying was, I am submitting myself to all 613 of the commands of God. I'm under the authority of God. And when Jesus said, when you go and pray and you go into, go into your closet and make it secure, the prayer shawl was called the closet. You made it secure by closing the door on the closet. The prayer shawl was closed like this. You made it secure. They didn't have closets like we did, do today. You know, you didn't go into a first century home and find a closet, let alone a walk-in closet, right? So this was called the closet. The Apostle Paul, remember what Paul said he did? He said he was a tent maker. Remember that? A lot of people think he's out there making pup tents. That wasn't it at all. This was called the tent. The prayer shawl was called the tent. He was a maker of prayer shawls. He was a tent maker. So that's just not related to the lesson. It's just to get your attention as we go to the lesson. Let's go to chapter 3. That was a sermonette. Okay, chapter 3. I believe that the one, I'll say the or one of the top three significant things you will ever do in your life is get stewardship right. If you're going to grow spiritually, you've got to get this one right. I was thinking about this the other day, that what is greed? You know, what is greed? I, I thought about it, and I thought, you know, am I greedy? You know, are there areas of my life that's greedy? And I began to just kind of go through this. What is Christian greed? And I realized the first step in Christian greed is withholding God's money from him. This is when it gets quiet. You see, the principle in the kingdom is that the first and the best always belongs to God. That's the principle in the kingdom. The firstborn belongs to God. The first ten belongs to God. I don't give a tithe. I bring a tithe. I give an offering. This is a principle in the kingdom. Now, when you begin to think about this principle, then greed comes in when I withhold that which does not belong to me. That's the first step in Christian greed. The second step is when I withhold what I have in the margin to give to someone else. So no one is more generous than God. Would, can we agree with that? God gave his what? Only begotten son. That's a pretty big gift, pretty generous gift, is it not? When I first was uh, saved, I had a, a gal who was, I guess you'd call her a Sunday school teacher, and she was from Wales, and I remember the day that I walked in there. I'd just been saved, and she said something to the effect um, that until you honor God with the first tenth of your income, God will not honor you. And I thought, what does that mean? What, is tenth, what does God want? And, you know, I'm in college. You know, I didn't make any money, so it was easy. You know, if you make like a buck, uh, here's my dime, right? 
And But what she taught me was that day that if I will honor God, God will always honor me. And so I just thought, you know, I'm just going to get in this. I'm going to get in this game early, and I'm going to grow with it. And so I can tell you today, and, it, and it's not because you get any credit for this. You don't get credit for giving somebody something back that belongs to them. But there's never been a paycheck that I've made, never a dollar I've made that I haven't given 10% back to God. Not once. Not once in my entire Christian life. Because it's not mine. It's his. Just his. And then anything I give over 10% is called an offering. The first tenth is a tithe. The word tithe literally means tenth. And anything above that is an offering. So I went to pastor my first church, and this uh, guy named Ansel Carruth, isn't that a great southern name, Ansel Carruth? Ansel Carruth was a guy who had been in the church for years, and he said, Preacher, he said, everybody in this church ties. I said, I kind of laughed. I said, oh, no, no, Ansel, they don't. He said, oh, yeah, they do. He said, some of them bring it, and some of them God goes and gets it. <laughs> and he was making a point that you can't rob God because it's going to show up in other parts of your life, Lights you, ways that you don't expect it to show up. So I want to just read the Scripture to you. And it's almost ironic. You almost, you know, I, whenever I read this, I always get this picture of, you know, me putting on one of those little, you know, Lone Ranger masks, you know, and I've got guns and I'm going up to God going, God, give me all you got. Will a man rob God? Verse 8. Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. So you've taken the first tenth, and then you've taken all the offerings above that. And then he says something really interesting that you really don't expect to hear from God. You're cursed with a curse. You mean for me doing that, I'm cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me even, in the whole, even this whole nation. And then here's the command, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me or test me in this. Now, as far as I know, the passage we read from uh, Isaiah 45 is the only time where God says, command me in this. And as far as I know, this is the only place where God says, test me in this. Put God to the test. Prove me. I want to show you something. I want to show you what I can do. Would you just try me in this? And, you know, my whole ministry, I've preached this message on, on honoring God with the first tenth. And, you know, it's one of those messages where you just kind of wish you didn't have to do it, but it's the best thing that you could do for anybody. Because what it does is it realigns the spiritual dimension of money in a person's life quicker than anything else. So it says here, Try me in this, says the Lord of hosts, and here's what I will do. If you will do this, let me show you what I will do. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven. Now this is, see, what it comes down to, do I believe God's word is true? I will open the windows of heaven. And what I'm going to do when I open them, I'm going to pour it on you such a blessing there will not be room enough to receive it. So I'm going to take care of you, but you have to put me to the test. And here's how I'm going to do it. Verse 11, I'm going to rebuke the devourer for your sakes. I want you to think about what devours your livelihood. I mean, could it be, you know, a car breaking down? Could it be inflation? Could it be, what could it be? What devours your income? 
so that it will, he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. And all of a sudden, insight comes in. Who's the devourer? It's not an it, is it? What is it? He. You see, when you, when you get out of a spiritual alignment in this area of your life, you open yourself up to the devourer, him, the enemy, and he comes in. It's kind of like opening up, you know, you, you can imagine, you know, here's this, gate of, uh, here's this wall of Jerusalem. It's got 10 or 12 gates around it, and they're all secure but one. Hey, we're in pretty good shape. 11 out of 12 is not bad. But which one does the enemy want to come in? He want to come, he's going to come in the one that's unlocked. And so it says here, um, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit in your field. So now what you plant is going to produce. It's going to produce. It's not going to fail you. And it goes on to say, nor shall the vine and the fruit in the field, says the Lord of hosts, and all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So here's the principle that, that, um, that we teach. Here's the principle that I believe in. Um, oftentimes people say, well, you know, that's in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, um, you know, you don't, uh, you don't have to do that. You just kind of get to do what you want. Watch this. There is nothing that Jesus talked about in the Old Testament does not go to a higher level in the New Testament. Example, the Bible says do not commit murder. But I say if you hate your neighbor, you see what he does? He takes it to a new level, doesn't he? He says you used to be able to externalize everything, but I'm going to show you you internalize things in the New Covenant. So he never demands less out of you. He demands more out of you. And then the other interesting thing is a character in the Bible named Melchizedek, right? Mysterious guy. You know, you ought to check him out and read about him. You find him in the book of Genesis. We'll cover it, you know, in about 2020 um, in our study in Genesis, right? Um, and then also you'll find him in the book of Hebrews. Melchizedek is called the king of Salem. And Salem is where we get our word Jerusalem. This was the king of Jerusalem before there was a Jerusalem. Hebrews tells us he has no lineage. He has no father, no mother. He has no earthly father, no mother. And guess what? When, when Abraham comes and meets him, the first thing he does is he bows to the ground and he gives him one-tenth of all that he has. You know, you don't give me a tithe. You give God a tithe, amen? And he honored him and gave him a tithe. He bowed down and honored him with that. Now, the law, let me tell you when the law came in. The law did not come in until Moses. Quick. Dang. The law did not come in until Moses. So the law only ran, Scripture says, technically, from Moses to John. That was the law. That's why there's some things you wonder about. Well, how did, you know, where did Adam and Eve, where did their kids get their wives? They married their sister and brother. And we get grossed out by that because nobody wants to marry their sister or their brother. And, and, the, and the, the main teaching on why you don't do that came in the law of Moses because in the law of Moses, by that time, the gene pool had become corrupt enough that it would have a detrimental effect on the birth of children. 
You see, the longer we live, the more corrupted our gene pool becomes and the more likelihood of, you know, um, abnormalities that would be in, show, show up in a child because of marrying within the family. So the law didn't come in till then. But remember, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill it. And the word fulfill mean, is the word, Greek word pleroma. It means to bring it to its zenith. I didn't come to get rid of it. I wanted to show you that everything in the Old Testament was a shadow of things to come, Colossians chapter 2. That's why Colossians says, let no one act as your judge in regard to a festival, a new moon, a Sabbath day, food or drink. These are things that are a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. So when we talk about a Sabbath, for example, we think about Sabbath as a day of rest, right? But it was not commanded to stop and observe a Sabbath until the law. Hebrews tells us, now watch this, because all these, these tie together. Hebrews tells us that Sabbath is not a day you keep. It's a relationship you enter into. You enter into Sabbath rest with Jesus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. And here's how Hebrews sets it up. Had Joshua been able to give them rest, he would not have spoken of another day. You get Sabbath rest in relationship. The law came in because man couldn't figure out how to get it right in relationship. Abraham figured out how to get it right in relationship with the tithe before the law ever came in. And so there was no need for it until the hardness of men's hearts. God sent Moses and said, we're going to give you the law because they can't figure it out, and so we're going to establish it right now. Here's the things you're going to have to observe. Here's what you're going to have to get right in order to walk and understand the true meaning of, of what I'm about. So Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 7 with these words. He says, you know, had the law said thou shalt not covet, I wouldn't know what coveting was. He said, I read it in the law, and I go, wow, that's what I've been doing. That must be coveting. So it was there not to save you. It was there to show you something. So when we read in Malachi, basically what he's saying is you guys can't get this right. Let me put it down here where you can understand it and live with it. Now, I'd rather you live in the spirit of it all. I'd rather you just give out of generosity, and that's how he writes to Paul. He said, I want you to understand something about generosity and about joy and about, about giving and trying to see how much you can, you can give and how you can outgive. You just try to outgive God. Just try it. You know, Here's one of the reasons why, and there's a bunch of reasons listed in here, but here's one of the reasons I love to give. I love the way that I feel when I give. I just, I don't know. I think it's something with the image of God in us that when we give something away, it, it, it resonates with the character of God that is in us, inside of us. When we withhold something, it, it goes against the image of God and goes against the nature of God that is within us, and it makes us feel not right about something. And no wonder it says it's more blessed to what? To give. So in other words, blessed is the word happy. You get happy when you give. You get, you get unhappy when you withhold, when you get stingy, it just doesn't feel right. You know, you might have more money, but it doesn't feel right. 
You know, sometimes we're walking through the mall and we see people with like tons of bags of stuff. And your first thought is, man, people are making some money around here. And then I go, oh, wait a minute. They're not tithing. <laughs> well, really, I mean, take, take it. You know, we, we did a study one time in a church, and we could do the same here. You could take the average in- household income of an area you live in, multiply it times the number of families you have in a church, and come up with what would it be a tithe if everybody would tithe. And I would guess probably, you know, in this church, probably our, our budget would have to go to somewhere around $15 million a year. Because the average household income is $124,000 in this area. And you say, well, I ain't making that. No, I said the average. Some people are making 10 times that. The average Christian gives 2%. The average. That means some give none, some give 20. So here's what I I like to say. And I I love to speak at giving because I just, I love to give. You know, people say, isn't that hard? No, I love it. I love to see you squirm. I love to see you sweat. I love to see you walk out and go, that's all he ever talks about is giving. You know, by the way, just a little hint. If you say that, you mark yourself as guilty. Don't ever say it. If you believe it, just don't say it to anybody. Okay? Because that means, yes, you're not giving. Um, but I forgot what I was going to say now. But, but I think, see, I just get myself. Darn, I hate that all-timers. But, um, but I think when we, when, we, when we get in this spirit of generosity and the spirit of giving, there's something that is just so conducive to the world around us. And, and it just, people are blessed wherever we go. And that doesn't mean you don't exercise wisdom. You know, you always want to exercise wisdom in your giving, but you never withhold, withhold because of that. And I just want to encourage you to just become generous people and, and, and give out of a heart of, of believing. Um, in Hebrews, it says that he that comes to God must believe that he is. Okay? So if I'm going to come to God, I've got to believe there is a God and that he is. And guess what the next one says? And he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. Did you know God is a rewarder, God? God wants to reward you. God wants to give to you. If we have this mindset that God is a reluctant God and a stingy God, you know, then unfortunately that's probably the way we're going to approach God. And when we approach God like that, he said, you know, typically God seems to respond the way that we view him. You know, if we don't think God can heal, have you ever noticed how people who have that mindset, there's even churches and theologies that say, God, oh, God doesn't heal anymore. Well, I don't want to be around those people. Do you? You know? I want to be around the people that believe that God is still, the, like he says he is, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he's that kind of a God. But he's a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro across the earth, Scripture says, that he might strongly support those whose heart is completely his. That's the heart of God. Heart of God is I want to support you. When you're teaching people, and one of the reasons why we, we put the money and possessions at the back is because you've got to get through some stuff to get to this point in your life. You know, the brand-new Christian, I mean, if, you, if this was lesson one, the guy just comes to faith in Christ, and you say, okay, now let's get out your checkbook. It's time to do business with God, <laughs> right? He's going, whoa, I don't think I want to do this anymore. 
So what we want to do is we want to understand that when you're discipling someone, there is an order here that's, that's very, very, very measured. It's, it's put there for a reason. And you can't teach somebody something you don't do. How, how do I teach this? I had a youth pastor one time. It's kind of a funny story now. Um, but I had a youth pastor, and, and he, uh, my financial um, accountant came, and she said, you know, this must be wrong, but here's, here's the youth pastor's uh, giving statement for the year. And I look at it, and I go, well, that can't be right. My six-year-old son's given more than this cat, right? And he was. He really was. I said, that can't be right. It's got to be a mistake. I'll talk to him. So I, one day after work, I said, hey, Craig, can I talk to you? And I said, here's your giving statement, but it, this can't be right. He looks at it and goes, oh, yeah, that's right. I go, what, what? It's like $11 for the year. And I was paying him a decent wage. And I think he was living at home. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, the guy was hurting. And he goes, no, that's right. And I says, well, let me, let me just sit down. Let me just talk to you about tithing. Let me show you about giving. So I had the little board, you know, and I get the board, and I write it all out, and I show him the scriptures, and I said, now, do you understand that? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I know all this, and I agree with you. And I go, you do? Well, why don't you just give then? He goes, well, my wife said we can't afford it. I said, okay, here's what you do. You, take every, you think you got all this stuff down that, that I showed you? Why don't you go home, sit down with her, and say, hey, I want to explain this to you, and we really need to kind of start picking this thing up, Right? We need to start growing in the area of stewardship. So anyway, a couple days later, he comes back in, and he, he says, I said, hey, how did it go with your wife? I was excited, you know. He was gonna, he's going to lead and teach about stewardship. And he said, yeah, she said we can't do that. And I said, okay, give me your keys. He said, what? I said, yeah, give me your keys. I said, see how far you get without this job. And I fired him. Fired him. He was mad. Years later, I'm talking 15 years later probably, I see him at a funeral, and I don't want to even see him. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? I just like, because I hadn't seen him since the day I took his keys back. And I'd already cleared this with my leadership, by the way. Uh, because how is he going to teach students something he doesn't do? Right? And so, uh, so I, I see him, and, and he starts walking to me. How do I get out of here? You know, you ever done the, the Holy Dodge? The Holy Dodge, you know, they're coming, I'm getting out of here as quick as I can, right? So I'm trying to do the Holy Dodge, and so all of a sudden he, he comes up to me, and he goes, uh, uh, hey, Phil, how you doing? I go, I'm great, you know, and I'm thinking, dang it. Kind of wish I would have had more mercy back there now. You know, I wish I wouldn't run into you. And he goes, hey, I want to thank you. I go, what? I want to thank you for firing me. He said, because had you not done that, I never would have understood what it meant to be a steward for God, and it changed my life, and I want to thank you, and I was relieved. <laughs> I was pretty sure I could take him, but I knew I couldn't outrun him. You know what I mean? And I think that, I mean, that's a pretty, I mean, that's a pretty somber way to teach a guy a lesson. I haven't done that since, by the way, so just want you to know it's not like I do it every week, but, um, but I think it, it illustrates a point that, that we need to come back to honoring God for who God is. That's really what it comes down to. I want to honor God in what we do and how we give. Okay? Um, Tam, you going to do some interactive stuff? 
You're, you want me to keep going? Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's go over to page 57. Page 57. Uh, New Testament principles of, of uh, giving touch these areas. Discipline. You know, when I was growing up, my dad, my parents really weren't like super church-going people. We kind of went once a month if it was convenient. But my dad had a discipline, and the discipline was that if he was going to church, I still remember he would fill out that little envelope, and he would put it right there on the, on the counter, and he would grab the envelope. If he was going, he was, had the discipline of putting it in there. And then at the end of the year, if he got a statement and, he, and it didn't match up with what he thought he would give, then he would write another check and he would mail it in. And I, and I, I don't know, I, I, don't, I never had the discussion with him before he died, but I, I never knew, did he do that because he just wanted to help the church? Did he do it out of obligation, out of guilt? I don't know what he did, but he did it out of, he, there was a discipline in his life. It was a discipline in his life. And the discipline principle here in giving is something like this, that I set a pattern in my life, and I don't just give when I have the urge. You always know when there's a water, you know, watered-up $1 bill in the offering plate, somebody just felt a little bit under obligation because they had to look into the bottom of an empty basket. And, and I don't want that to be a part of anybody's life. You know, what I do, uh, and, and you know, a lot of people do, is I just... I use the discipline of online giving. I don't have to even think about it anymore. I, I sign up and, you know, and every week, you know, on Thursday, you know, it goes right into the church account and it's, it's set up and I don't have to think about it. And then as God moves me, you know, if we have a special guest or we have, you know, the single moms thing we did or whatever it might be, then I, I can give out of that. I can give out of, you know, out of the margin that God gives me. But you say, well, I, I, don't, I like the, the fact of writing the check and giving it. I think that's great. I, I, but I think you have to get a discipline. So a lot of people say, well, you know, I've got myself in such a financial strait that I can't, I don't know how in the world I could ever tithe. Okay, then set a pattern. Say, okay, go back, look at your financial statements. It's a good time. It's January. You can go back and look. You know, we just got the statements. And say, figure out what percentage you gave of your income over the last year. And say, God, I'm going to try to give another percent. I'm going to go up a percent. I'm going to go up 3%. I'm going to try to get that up. And I'm going to take the next six months or 18 months or whatever. But I'm going to get in a discipline. Because here's the, here's the beauty of the whole thing. What you sow, you what? You reap. People say, well, you, know, you don't really believe that if, um, that if you give money, you're going to reap money, do you? And I said, I do. I do believe that. Because if I don't, it violates the spirit of the kingdom of God. And here it is. You sow, you reap what you sow. You reap later than you sow. You reap more than you sow. If I sow corn, I don't get wheat. Do I? If I sow wheat, I don't get corn. I believe in that kingdom um, of, of everything reproduces after its own kind. So discipline is a thing. How about cheerful and voluntary? It says God loves a cheerful giver. You know, I have never seen when we took an offering, everybody breaking in laughter. Yeah, this is great. Hey, bring that basket back one more time. 
I'm having so much fun over here. Here, take this Rolex. I'm throwing it in. I've never seen that. I'd love to just have people break out into laughter, fall on the ground, just, hey, wait a minute. Can you wait a minute? i got to run to the ATM. <laughs> but when you give with generosity, it feels really good, doesn't it? And I think here's, here's another principle I want to tell you. If you can't, if you give out of guilt, you shouldn't give because you got the wrong heart. Just get the heart right and then see what happens. God loves a cheerful giver. And that word, by the way, in the Greek, that word that's found in Corinthians, is literally the word that, where we get our word hilarious. Hilarious giver. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to pay bills this week. <laughs> oh, I love this. I went to a church in, uh, in Ohio, and I went into, and, and they didn't really tell me the full picture of how bad they were financially off. And so I went in, and, and her name was Rita. I think it was Rita. I go to Rita, tell me how you do bills and tell me how we're doing. She says, and she had this, <laughs> she, she was uh, Scottish, and she had this look. She says, well, she said, we don't have enough money for anything around here. I said, okay, well, can you give me a little insight into what's going on? And she said, see that fishbowl behind me? I looked and I go, yeah. She said, you notice it's full of bills? I said, yeah. I put all the bills in there, and then every week I pull out three bills. I stir them up, I pull out, and I pay three. If I got any money left, I'll pull out a fourth one. I said, what? You mean you don't pay everybody? She said, can't afford to. Not enough money around here. I said, what do you do when people call and that, that we haven't paid? She says, I tell them I'm going to take it out of the fishbowl if they keep giving me a hard time. There'll be no drawing for you. Now, the funny thing about this, this is true. This is what she did. I said, well, we can't do this anymore. She says, preacher, we're going to do it. Do you get some more money in this place? Because it's the only way we can keep this show running. You know, fortunately, you know, God bless, and we, we, weren't, we got rid of the fishbowl pretty quick, all right? But I wasn't going to take it away from her because she would have put me in the fishbowl probably. So, you know, um, I think as we start to think about how, how God works in our heart, we just want to have that discipline. We want to be cheerful. It needs to be voluntary. It needs to be sacrificial. Um, you know, I, I always love it when uh, we had a, had a situation, and maybe you didn't hear this story. If you did, I, I apologize, but I think it, it bears telling again. On Christmas Eve, we took up an offering for the single moms, and... You know, I just wish I could just tell you some of the stories about, you know, some of the letters and some of the comments we've gotten from people. But um, the thing that moved me the most was after the first Christmas Eve service, a woman walked up to me and she said, I was a single mom. Um, at, I mean, I'm a single mom, but I, I was at the Mother's Day when you, when you took up the offering for single moms uh, on, at that particular day. And you sent me a check and it was the only check I had. I didn't have a job. And I didn't, I didn't expect it, and, and, and somehow God, since that time, has allowed me to have a job, and I'm living a little bit in the margin, and I knew you were going to do this tonight, and so she said, she handed me an envelope, and it had, she said, this envelope has $500 in cash in it, and, um, uh, and she's calling now, there she is, and um, she said it has $500 in it, and I want to give it to the single moms, I want to sew back into the single moms. To me, that was the biggest gift we got 
That was the biggest gift we got that night. Even though we got some people gave some really significant checks for single moms. That was the biggest gift we got because I know without a shadow of a doubt that was a sacrifice for her. There's just no way it couldn't have been. It couldn't have been. And I think whenever you give, you always want to think in terms of, you know, is this a sacrificial kind of a gift? Is this something that can, can, that I can feel a little bit? And it, and it does, I do without something in order to make this thing happen. And then, of course, the principle of sowing and reaping, page 58, is a critical piece of what we do. Um, I close with this quote. Everybody's glad I'm closing with the giving talk now. But um, Jim Elliott, when I, this, this book, I, I want to encourage you to read it. It's called the, the Shadow of the Almighty. If you want to read an amazing book on missions, to me, it's probably one of the greatest books on missions. But it's called In the Shadow of the Almighty. It's a Jim Elliott story. Jim Elliott was a student at Wheaton who had basically planned and trained his whole life to go to minister to the Aka Indians. He went to the degree where he, he would sleep on the floor, he would do without food, he would do all these things. And after he died, after he was actually killed by those Indians, very shortly, I mean, really didn't even get a ministry to him, but uh, they found his journal, and in his journal he had this quote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. When, when Jim Elliott was martyred along with um, another man, I think there was one other, maybe two other, but when he was martyred, it sent shockwaves through the Christian world, and they had more mission volunteers than they ever had before. You would think they would have less, right? They had more. And then when his book came out and when this this quote and other things said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. I can't keep my life. I can't keep my money. I can't keep any of those things. You know, we're, we're finite human beings. But I'm not a fool if I give up what I cannot keep so that I can gain an eternity what I cannot lose. Amen? And I think the heart of a disciple and the heart of a person who really wants to be a world changer is one who has that principle. I'm going to give up what I cannot keep so that I can gain what I cannot lose for the kingdom of God. And that's a powerful, powerful kind of a thing. When I, uh, I've coined a phrase, and I want to close with this, but I've coined a phrase from the book of Joel. The book of Joel, we, we're kind of familiar with it. I read a little bit. I didn't read this scripture. But in the book of Joel, it says, I'm going to restore unto you the years that the locusts have eaten. You've heard that, right? And the principle goes kind of like this, that we've all wasted time. We've all made some mistakes. We've all squandered opportunities. Maybe we've lived out of the will of God part of that time. But in Joel time, what I call it, Joel time, Joel makes up. It's an accelerated time that God does at the end of the age, and I believe we're in it. God does at the end of the age stuff faster than he's ever done before. And so whatever time you lost in in the past, whatever mistake you made, God will expedite that. He will speed everything up for you so that you will see greater blessings come in a short amount of time than you ever saw in all those years prior to that. And I believe we're living in Joel 2 time. 
I believe God wants to do something far beyond what we could ever ask or think in these last days, and he wants to do it with people like you and like me, people who will assemble themselves and say, we want to see what God can do. And I want to challenge you to be that kind of an in-time person who says, let's see what God can do. When I began the first message in January um, 2015, before we started the Genesis, here's what I said. I want you, I want to challenge you to make 2015 the year of your greatest impact for the kingdom of God. That you're going to, you're not going to hold anything back. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to move forward and you're going to say, if there's, if I've got one year to do it, let me make it 2015. One year. You get to 2016, so that was a mess, worst decision of my life. You don't have to do it again. But why not take 2015? This will be my greatest year of commitment, my greatest year of ministry, my greatest year of service and ministry and fellowship and all those other good things go with it. Why not make this a commitment to be your greatest year in the kingdom of God? Amen? Amen. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we want to thank you tonight for uh, this time we've had and, God, for every single person that is uh, here in this place. God, I just uh, just want to affirm everyone. God, I just... I marvel every week that we have this class when people come in here and they just they sit for hours and, and they listen and they pray and they, they share and they laugh and, um, and do all that stuff. And, God, it's a great commitment. And I just want to thank each one of you in Jesus' name for your commitment. It just I'm proud, God, to say uh, these are the people you've assembled in this time for the kingdom of God. And we just want to extend love to you and, and uh, just pray the favor of God on every single person in this room that God does beyond what you could ever ask or think, that you seize the power of the kingdom in such a way that you disrupt all the powers of hell, you move mountains, um, you see you do great exploits for God, that you really are a world changer in the truest sense of the word. And God, we, we thank you, we love you, and we pray, God, we have a great week in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Uh, as always in our tradition, we take chairs and tables down and, uh, and do it with a smile. Amen?